Well, let's take our Bibles. If you're using the Pew Bible, it's page 774, Jonah chapter 1. That's page 774 in the Church Bible. The story is, of course, the story familiar from Sunday school, if you went to Sunday school, of the the prophet who ran away from God and, well, fell into the sea and ended up in the belly of a fish. You know the story. Well, we've not even got to that part of the story yet. We're still with the prophet running away, and we've been looking, focusing really on this figure of Jonah. But this morning, I want to look at these other characters in the story a bit more closely. Let's remind ourselves of the story so far. The word of the Lord's come to Jonah. Jonah's gone in the opposite direction. He's on a boat going to Spain, to the west coast of Spain. Verse 4, the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. The mariners are afraid, verse 5, and uh, they call out to their gods, and uh, they find Jonah below decks. And they said to one another, verse 7, they said to one another, come let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation, and where do you come from? What is your country, and of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. And he said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea, then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to the dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Back in the 1970s, in 1971 to be exact, I read from the history books, the psychedelic rock band The Doors released the famous song, Riders on the Storm. Now, to be honest, I knew the words of Riders on the Storm off the top of my head. I have a song for every occasion, as my children will testify, irritatingly so. And so, as I was reading this passage for this morning, that was the song that came in to my mind. It was obviously a prompting of the Holy Spirit, uh, or, or not. 
And, uh, but I had to look up who sang it. The Doors sang it. And it was released in 1971. But it seemed to me that the words of the song were what struck me. I'm not going to sing it for you this morning. I've been, my wife has told me quite strictly, you are not ever to sing again in church. Um, <clears throat> into this house we're born, into this world we're thrown, like a dog without a bone, an actor out on loan, riders on the storm. And the second stanza, there's a killer on the, on the road, Try not to sing it. If you give this man a ride, sweet family will die. Killer on the road. Now, I wonder whether if Jonah's companions on the ship that, that morning, that day, were beginning to think that about him. Here they are, tossed about in the storm of epic proportions, their lives hanging by a thread, They'd explored every means of saving themselves. They'd thrown the cargo, that is, the means of their business, enterprise, their income, overboard. They were calling out to their various gods. And suddenly it's impressing itself upon them that this passenger, this stranger that they've taken on board, whom they've found sound asleep below decks while the storm is raging around him, might very well be the killer on the road. His presence may very well mean that having given this man a ride, they, the sweet family will die. He's the killer on the road. That's, that's the suspicion that is beginning to grow in the minds of these men in the passage that we've read this morning. And they're going to find out something. They're going to find out that they, are, they will make a greater discovery than the discovery of what the problem is. They will have a greater encounter than the encounter with the storm. But they're going to discover and encounter Jonah's God, the God of storms, the God of sacrifices, and the God of salvation. Well, they're going to discover or are discovering the God of storms. You see, the whole context of the story really begins in verse 4, where without any apologies, the text reads like this, the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship, that particular ship, threatened to break up. The Jewish writers on, on Jonah, the commentators, the Jewish commentators on, on Jonah, talk about God taking the wind out of his treasures and hurling it into the sea. It, it is his action from beginning to end. He, it is his, his direct action, and the ship, their ship, is nearly broken. The Jewish writers try will say in many of their commentators that it was only that ship that was in the tempest. That even as they're struggling on that ship, they're able to see other ships that are unaffected by the storm, undisturbed by the storm. It is that ship that is nearly breaking up, that ship that is nearly being cast into the depths, that ship that they thought would be broken. 
These men who had the management of the ship are finding that all is lost and they are afraid. They have already begun to see that this this storm is extraordinary. This storm has a supernatural element to it. This storm has put them in extreme danger. They see no probability at this stage of them being saved. And this storm must have been very bad for these experienced sailors. The, the, the Jewish authors, the Jewish commentators said that the, the word that's used here, say the word that's used here of a sailor is, is a salter, somebody who is experienced in the salt sea. There were many smaller bodies of water on which seamen operated, but this, these kinds of sailors operated on the sea. They were mariners. It comes from mare, the sea. And each one of these men, we're told, cried out to their God. These men were polytheists. The Jews say that there were 70 men on board, and these 70 men represented the 70 nations of the earth, each of whom had their different God, and they separately called upon their different gods. These men then represent the world of religion. Now, this surprises us. We, we live in a secular society. We studiously are secular. That's our, that's our great purpose. If there is a faith in America today, the predominant faith in America today is faith in secularism. But most of the world still believes in religious gods. We are in a minority in the world. Most of the world believes still in religion and in different gods. And what happens here in this text, finding these people in such distress and calling each, each crying out to their God, we're told in verse 5, is not surprising. In fact, when you read the New Testament, you discover that there is, a, there is an inbuilt, intrinsic hardwired into human beings' sense of the divine. The Apostle Paul puts it like this when he's writing to the Romans in that classic passage when he's speaking about the wrath of God or the wrath of God. I can't remember now which it is. It's the wrath of God. Uh, He says this, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. He's thinking of you trying to put the the lid on that trash can, pushing it down, pressing it down. We suppress truth that is hardwired into our nature. This truth is natural revelation. It's Revelation that's available to everybody wherever they are in the world, this natural revelation. He explains this. What can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely, His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So creation, order of creation, 
the forms of creation evidence this natural awareness that people have of there being something greater than themselves, however they describe it. But he goes on to say this, that this awareness in itself leaves people without excuse. And he explains, although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. They exchanged the glory for the immortal God for images representing mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Now, what is Paul saying? Paul is saying that there is something very understandable about what these men did in the boat. There are no atheists in foxholes, we say. When you're in danger, even though you may be as secular as secular can be, even though you may be an atheist, when you are in radical danger of death, there is a real likelihood that you may call out to some kind of help somewhere in the universe which you may or may not call God. That is an impulse of the human heart. These men, therefore, had that revelation. They had that natural revelation. They are acting on that natural revelation. They are religious people. They believe in God or gods. And what Paul is saying is, what the Bible teaches all over from beginning to end, if you call on any other god than God, you are an idolater. These men were idolaters. These were not innocent bystanders. They, they'd done nothing wrong, yes. The storm has been sent because of Jonah, but Jonah's not the only sinner on that boat. He's not the only person on that boat who disregards God, the real God. These men were acting out of that suppression of truth that is natural, normal for all of us by nature. Now, in this, in this text… That familiar picture, that, that idea of these men calling on their gods was a step of, it was a step of religious fervor because they were terrified. They, they understood that there was something greater than just a normal storm going on here. Now, in the language of the text, we're given an insight into what is actually going on. Verse 4. We're told there that the Lord threw the storm at them. Now, how did He do that? There are all kinds of secondary influences involved in the creation of a storm, the organization of the weather and the winds and so on. But what the author does is he cuts back all the secondary causes and he goes to the first cause. Takes us right to the heart of it. He reminds us, and I believe these men were taught later to know this by, jo by Jonah himself. The author reminds us that the God who created governs over, above, in, and through nature. 
What we call the laws of nature are, in fact, our acknowledgement of His regular way of organizing natural effects. When He deviates from that ordinary way He does things, we call them miracles. They're, in fact, Him just doing it a little bit differently. When we use language, as we do as Christians from time to time, the Lord allowed such and such to happen, or the Lord permitted such and such to happen. We're using language for which we have absolutely no biblical authority whatsoever. It is nonsense language. If you believe in the God of the Bible, that language is inappropriate language. The God of the Bible is a full-on, willing participant in every aspect of created existence. From the the synapse in your brain, to your DNA, to the breath you're breathing, every aspect of your existence and this world's existence requires the full-on active attention and will and direction and governance of the God of the Bible. We call that providence. That's the biblical word for that. It is a full-on engagement of God with all created reality. It could not go on. It could not exist without God being fully willing. That is making it happen, supporting, sustaining it, controlling it, moving it as He pleases. That's the universal teaching of the Bible. Psalm 148, praise Him, sun and moon. Praise Him, shining stars. Praise Him, highest heaven. Praise Him, you waters above the heavens. Let them praise the name of the Lord. Why? He commanded and they were created. He established them forever and ever. He gave a decree. It shall not pass away. Praise the Lord. You sea creatures and all the deeps, fire and hail, snow and mist, stormy wind, fulfilling, fulfilling His word. It all comes by order from the throne. There's this great piece in Psalm 107. Some went down to the sea in ships doing business in the great waters. They saw there the deeds of the Lord, the wondrous works of the Lord in the deep. For He commanded, listen, He commanded and raised the stormy wind that lifted up the waves of the sea. It comes by His command from the throne. These men encountered the God of storms, the God whose hand lies, if we can use the word hand from a human point of view, behind every motion and action of the sea, whose command sends the winds and then recalls the winds. The Son of Man, when He came down, you remember, onto this world and in this human nature found himself in a storm, they discovered that even the winds and the waves obey him. Though they've always obeyed him. At every moment they obey him. Storms and floods, earthquakes, volcanoes, all happen by his decree. 
We don't need to come up with euphemisms for this. We don't need to be saying to people, well, God allowed that to happen, or God permitted that to happen. We don't need to be God's PR men. That's not our job. We don't have to be His personal relations people, making Him look good. We're not like the guy who has to stand in front of the White House press corps and give explanations for the actions of the president. That's not our job. These are the facts. We, we, don't, we can put these things before people. He is no passive onlooker. And if you find yourself in church today, and you're here, and your life is a storm, perhaps, metaphorically speaking, then I have to say to you, these things come upon us, come upon all of us, because God rules the world, and our world is a world in judgment. Things are out of sorts here. In the book of Revelation in chapter 6, there's a book that's described that is sealed with seven seals. And in that book, we learn, are all the events of history, wars and famines and earthquakes and so on. And the question is asked, who has the authority in all of heaven to open the seals of that book? And we're told, the Lamb of God the risen, exalted Lamb of God has the authority to unseal the book and unleash these, these factors in, into the world. And so we, we read of the rider who brings war, a rider who brings famine, another whose name is death. And the seals opened by the one who was slain for our sin. These men they knew the storm suggested somewhere, somewhere were aroused against them, and eventually they discovered who it was. It was the Lord, the God of storms. But when we find them in this, at this point in the, in, the, in the chapter, they're still struggling. They're still calling on their various deities. It's all very up-to-date and postmodern, by the way. These guys could be poster boys for the diversity and authenticity and harmony of the human race all at work and one towards one end. People of diverse religions all working together for one great end. But they discovered not only the God of storms, they discovered the God of sacrifice. We've already spoken last week on the guilty silence of the church that is represented by Jonah. And there are parallels with the church today, where the church would rather do anything other than preach the truth of the Word of God to people in the, word, in the world. That, that's why it's easier to do acts of service for people than it is to preach the gospel to people. Every year I have the privilege, uh, as I did this week on Thursday, to go and speak to our summer medical institute folks who've been working in North Northeast Philly. They've been going around doors, knocking doors, offering basic medical checks and so on and help. And they've also had the opportunity to speak the gospel to people. And if you were to ask them, they would tell you that doing the medical checks is easy. That's, you know, you're, you're there to serve those people. Those are, they're underserved people. And there you are. They're there, giving up time in order to be there in order to serve those people. And they'll tell you that preaching the gospel to them is the harder thing altogether. 
So it always is. And therefore, the temptation is to be silent. If you look at the evangelical world in the last 50 years, the word mission has gone from preaching the gospel to basically anything in any form that you do that has any kind of distant connection to the church or Christianity. Well, here, here are these men, these sailors, left to their own devices, the men in the boat who felt for sure that the gods were angry but could not identify the problem, now desperately try to find out why it is that they are in the condition that they're in. So the captain finds Jonah, asks him why he's asleep, tells him he should join the rest and call on his God. Perhaps your God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. They cast their lots. The lot falls on Jonah. It's the very first indication in this book that the God who sent the storm still loved Jonah and that he loved these sailors. So look from verse 8. They said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Prophet. And where do you come from? Well, I come from Amittai. And what is your country? Israel. And what people are you? God's chosen people. <laughs> I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Now, he obviously elaborated on that. He was a preacher, after all. We know that he elaborated on it because they learned a lot of stuff that you can see when you read what follows this. I fear the Lord. I notice the capital letters there, all uppercase letters. That translates the very personal name that God gave to His own people, His covenant people. He's the God of steadfast love and mercy. He's the God who introduced Himself to Moses with the language, I am. I exist. Self-existent. Stand-alone existence. Underived existence. Not potentially, but actually. Here is the God who is always in act, always in existence. Pure act, pure being, pure existence in and of Himself. He has life in and of Himself. Remember the bush that burned? It burned, but never, never consumed the bush. This God has life in Himself. He is self-existent, the Lord, and is committed to His own people. He's committed to Israel. He's committed to His elect. He's committed to those that He redeems. He is the Lord. He's the God of heaven. That means that He does not belong to this earthly reality. And He's the one who made the sea and the dry land. He is the first cause. He is the unmoved mover. He is the creator of everything outside of Himself. The God of Jonah is the creator who possesses fundamental priority over everything else. That is, He was before everything else. He has fundamental perfection with respect to everything else. Everything else, especially as the result of sin, 
has not the same degree of perfection that this God has. He is perfect in his attributes. What do we say about him? We attribute holiness to God. God is holy. He is perfect in his holiness. You and I may derive a degree of holiness in our lives, but our holiness will always be flawed, always shot through with with our selfishness and other things because we are finite and fallible and flawed. But God is perfect in his attributes. His holiness is perfect. His love is perfect love. And he has absolute preeminence over his creation. Now, they put this together. I know they put this together in their heads. Jonah's saying to them, the God I believe in exists apart from me. Your gods are what? They're the product of your imagination. They're the product of your, the work of your hands. Somebody has to make the has to cast the silver to put that silver object of worship up in your shrine. Somebody has to, has to cast the gold to put that gold object. Somebody has to take the wood and cut the wood and form the wood and shape the wood for that wooden God that you worship. But the God that I worship isn't anything to do with this human, earthly, created reality Nobody made him. Nobody thought him up. No one discovered him. He is the standalone, self-sufficient Lord. And he's the God of heaven. He's above all of this. And he made the sea and the dry land. He made it all. That's why when he's told them this, they said to him, verse 11, what shall we do? They're terrified. Look at verse 10. The men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this you have done? Somewhere in there he told them that this Lord I am, this creator of the seas and the earth, This God of heaven had spoken to him and said, Jonah, go to Nineveh. And Jonah had said, no. (laughs) And they're saying to him, if you really believe that there's a God like that, what have you done? What have you done? When the world sees sin in the church, when the world hears the church degrading the status of Jesus Christ, as evangelicals have done, questioning the Holy Trinity, which the church confesses to believe, when it sees the church playing around with the idea that maybe, maybe we need to conform to the world's new redefinitions of words like marriage and so on. When the world looks at us and sees us caving in to every wind of cultural change, 
It is our right to say to us, if, you, if the God you believe in is anything like the God your hymns talk about, what have you done? What have you done? And there was born in them a healthy fear of the God of heaven. And it was out of that fear <clears throat> that they asked him the most basic, pressing question that I hope you will ask yourself or ask. Don't shout it out to me, but ask me and I'll answer it. I'll give you the question. They said to him this. Then they said to him, What shall we do that the sea may quiet down for us? They're saying to him, what do we need to do to be saved? What do we need to do to be saved? We obviously have to do something with you. The sea was growing more and more tempestuous. They had an insight into sin, that when one person sins, there are ramifications for others. Jonah had sinned. They are caught up in the sin. That's not to say they were sinless or they were innocent bystanders. They were sinners in their own way. But nonetheless, Jonah's sin got them into this. There is collateral damage whenever we sin. There always is. They learned that. And one man's sin can bring down on him and on others the justified wrath of God upon all sinners. What can we do to be saved? And Jonah, for the first time in this book, preaches the gospel to them. He said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. Because I know it was because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. He says, there's only one way out here. God's told me. It's because of me. He got my attention, and it's because of me. Here were these men, and they're saying to Jonah, we want you now to be the prophet God made you to be. Tell us the word of God. How can we be saved? The only way you can be saved is to get rid of me. Cast this one Jew into the sea that he may die in your room instead. And the justified wrath of God will be averted, and you will be rescued from death. That was the, good, that was the gospel. It was good news for them. Now, interestingly, what did they do? What did they do? These were good men. They may have been pagans, but they were really good pagans. <laughs> really good pagans. They wanted to spare him. What did they do? Nevertheless, it says, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not. The sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. There was compassion there, wasn't there, for him. There was courage. They tried desperately to roll themselves out of the storm. Maybe there's an instinctive aversion to the idea of sacrifice. They tried their level best. They tried their hardest to save themselves. But... They could not, it says. You see, the storm of judgment is too strong for any of you or me to overcome. 
We can only be saved by the sacrifice of someone else. There's a principle there in the Bible. It's everywhere in the Bible. It's here in this text. And it's still that way. All of our works, all our attempts at self-salvation are to no avail. Caiaphas the high priest at the Passover in the year A.D. 33 put it like this. One man must die for the people. Rome was getting antsy and upset. The danger was that Rome might turn on the Jewish people. One man must die for the people. That was his principle. Jesus of Nazareth was going to be the one man. He said more than he knew. Because it says at the beginning of John's gospel, Jesus is the Lamb of God that bears away the sin of the world. And just as at the time of the Passover, the Israelites took the Lamb and slaughtered it, painted its blood on the doorposts and lintel of their homes, and the judging angel passed over. So, Jesus, the Lamb of God, is sacrificed for us. Jonah was a prophet. He knew the mind and will of God, and he proclaimed it to these people. And you notice how they, they respond. They recognize that as far as their particular relationship with Jonah was concerned, he had done nothing directly against them. They had no gripe against him as a person. They maybe liked him as a person. They found him a bit funny, uh, perhaps strange, but nonetheless, they regard regard it as innocent blood. He doesn't deserve to be thrown overboard. And so they say, lay not on us innocent blood for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. Jonah was not absolutely innocent, but he was relatively innocent in relation to them. Don't those words echo the words of a man that once stood by as Jesus was being crucified? This man was an innocent man. Of course, the big difference between Jonah and Jesus, both died that others might live. Jonah died for his own sins. Jesus died for other people's sins. Jonah may have been relatively innocent. Jesus was absolutely innocent. And the gospel is preached to these men. They learned that the God of storms is the God of sacrifice, a sacrifice He provides And thirdly, they learned that he's the God of salvation. These sailors discovered that Jonah's God was the God of salvation. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea the way the storm had been hurled at them. And the sea immediately ceased from its raging. And the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. They learned a principle that although the whole of humanity incurs guilt because of the sacrifice of Jesus, they also receive salvation through the sacrifice of Jesus. They learned that from the principle of how they treated Jonah. Jonah was put in because of his own sins, but by obeying the Word of God in that regard, they were saved. They learned the principle of salvation through Jesus. And these men, therefore, feared the Lord. Notice the word that's used there. It's the capital letters, Lord. Jonah's given them enough theological 
input and, and teaching in the middle of that storm that they are able now to call upon the name of the Lord and understand what they mean by the name of the Lord. They feared the Lord. That was, this is no longer just fearing God in a kind of vague sense, but specific. This was not a natural fear. It was a religious one, not a servile fear or a fear of punishment, but reverential fear, godly fear. And they were not just afraid of him in, in the sense of reverencing him because of his goodness and saving them. They realized that this God had done all of this, had sent Jonah into their lives, not just that they'd have a storm to talk about for the rest of their lives, but so that they would find God. It's remarkable. God had said to Jonah, I want you to go to that big city of Nineveh and preach to a bunch of Gentile goyim. Just go there, preach to them the good news of the gospel. And he didn't go. And on this boat, when he has no other option, he has to preach the good news to Gentiles. And they're converted. Though he doesn't know about it because he's thrown overboard. Although there's something we'll learn. How did he know they were converted? But that's for another day. They were so pleased in this salvation that they feared the Lord. They offered a sacrifice of thanksgiving and praise to Him. They vowed that the God of Hebrews would be their God and that in the future they would serve and worship Him only. Everything about the language here points to genuine, genuine heart-changing repentance and salvation. You know, God can use a disobedient church. God can use believers who are out of sorts with their Lord. He can use you, whether you like it or not. The only difference is whether you get to enjoy what He uses you to do. If you're in disobedience, you may not get to enjoy what happens in those people's lives that you have indirectly affected. They get the joy of the Lord, and you don't get to hear about it until you get to heaven. But one way or another, God will reach people and He'll use whatever means to get their attention and then to deliver them by the power of His Word. You're here this morning. And you've come here and your life is a metaphorical storm. And you're wondering why you were brought to church this morning. Did you walk in off the street? Were you brought here by friends? Are you just here because you have to be here because your family brings you week in and week out? God meant you to be here. He means you to ask the question, what must I do to be saved? And He means you to hear the answer, I have provided the sacrifice. Once and for all, on the cross, in my Son, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. 
Lord, we pray that today you would please take your word and work it deep into our hearts, we ask you, and draw men and women to yourself. For those, Lord, who who the storms of life are being swirled up around them today, uh, emotionally or physically, whatever may be the case, we pray that, that your word would penetrate the storm, that they'd hear it, and in hearing, believe, and in believing, be saved, and being saved, find that joy that is unspeakable and full of glory. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen.